Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of Freight Expectations, a Freight Buyers Club podcast with a twist, because next year we'll be turning our analytic gaze to what the future of freight shipping and logistics holds for any of you guys out there in the business of buying supply chain services. We'll be helping you understand the future of logistics tech and how it affects our industry and your bottom line. And closer to here and now, we'll be looking at geopolitical and economic trends and the medium term outlook for carrier supply and demand as you plan procurement budgets and strategies for the years ahead. So watch this space. On this pilot episode, we have quite the treat because we hear so much these days about thought leaders in our industry. It's about as overused as the phrase world-class in sports. But my first guest on Freight Expectations ticks all those thought leadership boxes. I think I'm on safe ground when I say he's the world's foremost author on supply chains with a library of fantastically well-written and accessible books covering all elements of logistics and trade. He co-founded a string of successful supply chain companies and managed to sell them all to the likes of Oracle, Manhattan Associates, and Ryder. He has advised governments, retailers, and manufacturers, and he's the current director of the Center for Transportation and Logistics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Professor Yossi Sheffi, welcome to the inaugural episode of Freight Expectations. Thank you very much for having me, Mike, and thanks for the generous introduction. <laughs> a much-deserved introduction. Professor Sheffi, you've got a new book out called The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chain, AI, and the Future of Work, which, uh, if I might say so, is magnificent. It's a very readable, it's a very readable assessment of the world of supply chains and a very astute breakdown of some of the key technology challenges facing our industry. And you've got endorsements from the likes of FedEx's Fred Smith, ProLogis CEO Hamid Mogadam, and Bert's Vincent Clerk, which is quite the roll call, isn't it? Firstly, though, maybe could you explain to our listeners exactly what the Magic Conveyor Belt is? So the Magic Conveyor Belt is a sense of what supply chains are about. After the pandemic, people got to me and said they we understand you work in supply chain. What is this? What is this? We now, you know, everybody's telling us that we don't have toilet paper, we don't have meat, we don't have eggs because of supply chain problems. What is supply chain? So the first part of the book is actually an explanation in some sense to the uninitiated of what it takes to get something to the supermarket shelf or to the Amazon warehouse. And basically we're trying to convince people that they should not be angry or frustrated when something does not make it to the shelf and it's out of stock. Instead, they should be amazed and thankful when something does make it, when they understand what it takes to get something from a mine in, uh, I don't know, Vietnam or China to a ready product on the shelf of some toy store or uh, something on the supermarket shelf. So that's the first part of, of the book. And then try to explain that there's a lot of technology involved because still people have the old notion that it's all about moving boxes and driving trucks. And of course, it's a lot more than that. So to explain the connection between people and the fact that supply chain are built, basically social network, people selling to people, talking to people, contracting with people, and then all the new technology is involved. And then I ended up with talking about AI and they're not a technical explanation of AI, but rather the thing that people care most about is AI going to steal my job. Is machine learning is going to replace me. So I try to um, kind of cover 
that question, basically. I want to come back to AI and the different types of machine learning that are affecting our industry a little bit later, if I can. But I just wanted to follow up on one of the points that you just made there about the complexity of supply chains and the lack of knowledge that there's been out there previously. And it really struck me reading your book that you make it very accessible for the non-experts or the non-nerd, if I may put it like that. Two questions. Firstly, was that your intention? Do you have that in mind when you're writing? And secondly, in terms of the knowledge you assume your readers have of supply chains, has that bar been raised by the pandemic when, as you said, when supply chains became such a visceral part of all our lives, whether it was boardrooms or the kitchen shelf or the White House, it was hard to ignore the importance of supply chains to modern economies and our way of life during COVID lockdowns and the whole pandemic, wasn't it? Well, let me phrase it a little differently in the second, the second part of your question. Supply chains were always important. It's just that people realize how important they are during the pandemic. Because when things work, people take it for granted. They don't, you know, of course, we order from Amazon and two days later, or in Boston, it's two hours later, it's here. And it's just how God designed the earth. Well, it turned out it's not. It's not innate. It's not nature. It's people working and developing technologies and relationships and processes in order to get this incredible movement across the globe. And so I try to, first of all, to get people to understand, to get people to appreciate and to get people to understand that it did not come out during COVID. It was always there. And in terms of explaining the complexity, which I tried to do, to uninitiate it. And basically why they are trying to look at the complexity? Because during COVID, there were a lot of media report, the failure of supply chain, supply chain, you know, my response was, I don't know what you're smoking. It was a supply chain was the greatest hour because what happened was not because supply chain leaders did the right thing. The world changed significantly at once, you know, in a very short time. The response was magnificent. Nobody went hungry. And the changes were from one day to the next, all restaurants, all universities, all industrial parks, all closed. The food that was going there was going in, you know, 50 kilos, not in small packages with the ingredients on them. And so the machinery even to make it go into supermarket was not there. Yet it worked. It worked because a lot of dedicated people changed processes, adjusted, did a lot of things differently, and it worked. So I tried to explain to people what it takes to make it work and get them to appreciate the immense job that was done. Now, I, I wrote a, a separate book called uh, The New Abnormal to, uh, about the supply chain during the pandemic, where it went into a lot more detail, a lot more stories and case studies about that. But just to understand, and it's hard to exemplify it. So I, I'm talking about you know an automobile that may have 30,000 parts and how they all come together. But in order to get people to understand, I also mentioned the diapers have 50 parts. And more than that, there's 50 parts that all have to come together <laughs> just in time. So I hope people get an inkling of what's involved. One of the other things that struck me from your book was your how you describe technology and how you use history to do so to create context. You go back as far as the Luddites and you use these historical examples to really, well, to explain what's happening now, but what was also happening in the pandemic. Is this your way of getting everyone to calm down a bit? We've been here before, we've turned societal challenges from technology 
into opportunities we've adjusted and we'll do so again. Is that one of your intentions? It's exactly my intention because as a particular as generative AI was coming, people starting to freak out. And uh, I tried to say, look, to be fair, nobody knows what the future has for us. And there are people who think that the uh, generative AI will destroy society. And there are people who think, and just as, as many smart people think that it usher a new age of plenty and everybody will be happy. So who knows? When you don't know, you do what forecasters always know. You go to the past. You try to find trends. And uh, I look at the various industrial evolution, as you say, starting from the, the first industrial revolution with the Luddite in the UK, and then going to uh, Ford with the assembly line that also led to violence. And many other examples, including the fact during the third industrial revolution, we talk about computers and, and, and software. There was the saying that in the future, every factory will have no people, but just one man and a dog. And the man will be there to oversee the equipment and the dog will be there to make sure that the man doesn't touch anything. This was the vision of what computers will make. It was so wrong because of course we live right now in the age of very low unemployment, it created new industries and new jobs. Now, to be fair, some jobs went away. We don't have any more innovator operators. We don't have any more telephone exchange operators. It's all automated. But the point that I tried to make that there are many things that do not justify the current panic and many examples. But one example, we talked about telephone operators. In 1892, AT&T invented the automatic telephone exchange. 1892. Until then, you know, there's these women who were plugging stuff into holes and connecting people. In 1950, there were still 350,000 telephone operators in the United States. Only 1980 was the end of telephone operators. It took nine decades for the innovation to work its way and people to lose jobs. It is a much lower process than people think about actually losing jobs. And it turns out most of the impact is in changing jobs. Jobs change. On the margin, yes, some people lose jobs, but mostly the jobs are different. They are augmented by technology and people are more productive and do better, but it takes time. It takes a long time. Let's just park Generative AI, you've got a great chapter on this called Creative Cobot. I want to come back to that in a moment. AI, it grabs me, particularly in uh, the mainstream media, and it's very hard to avoid them doing this. I can see why it happens. But the AI is like a catch-all, almost. And especially since the launch of ChatGPT and its ilk, it's used as something that we should fear, whether that's job losses or even the destruction of humanity. So let's come back to the Generative AI but first, can you just explain that there's other types of AI and they've been deployed in logistics for decades already, haven't they? You know, this isn't all new. You know, people don't realize that they use AI every day and they're tackling and dealing and communicating with AI. When you call your favorite customer service representative and they say, just talk and tell me what your problem is, you're talking to an AI machine you know, who recognizes your voice, recognizes what you're saying, and quickly the computer runs and gives you an answer. But let me use this example and then come back to the rest, because this example is a perfect example of how jobs, how humans and machine divide jobs. And so when people call Dell computer, for example, and ask, my computer doesn't work, what's the majority of the reasons for this? It's either it's not plugged in 
which was not turned on. So these things do not require an expert, but an AI can say, did you turn it on? You know, the obvious thing. But if something is more complex, then either you ask for a human or the machine itself calls a human to start dealing with your problem. So what happened is the simplest problem are dealt with AI because you don't need experts to waste their time to do it. But when the problem is more complex, you get an expert. So this is a glimpse into what the future may look like. When you do, there are, of course, when you use Google Maps, there is an AI built into this, not only into the, not the map itself, but the map has a forecasting element. When you go from A to B, and it takes half an hour to go there, it looks at the or 20 minutes, 25 minutes from now, you'll be in that part of the road. How congested is it likely to be at that point? Not how congested, how con so it takes how congested it is now, but it looks at the whole future with machine learning, learning from the history and try to find out what it will be like. So yeah, you're actually using it. You don't even realize that. I'm talking about everybody. When we talk about AI logistics and supply chain management, there are many applications. We have now a huge movement to put robots in warehouses. These robots, for the most part, are infused by AI, by either machine learning or all kinds of sensors that tells the robot not to run into each other, whether it's Amazon-type robots or decide where packages should go on a conveyor belt. So a lot of these are being used already, and it's actually augmenting the work. Between 2017 and 2022, Amazon put this famous, the old Kiva robot, in all of their warehouses. This is a robot that pick up the aisles and bring them to the people. At the same time, they hire 1.2 million people at the same time. So you see that it changed the world. Instead of people going to the island, pick it up, people are standing in place and the robots are bringing stuff to the people. Okay, so the work has changed, but didn't lose the job. It, it's a different job for sure, but it's there. So that's a lot of what I'm, I'm talking about is how you ask about about logistics. So these are some of the jobs in logistics, but there are many others, of course. It has to do with forecasting and the risk management, finding out on suppliers. All of these are existing application already running and many under development, but anyway. In your book, you cite a 2020 World Economic Forum estimate that AI might destroy 85 million jobs by 2025, and also a 2022 study from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, which found that between 9% and 47% of jobs could be automated. But you seem to be arguing that people shouldn't be too worried about losing their jobs to machine learning or AI-based algorithms. Look, one of the things that universities are dealing with right now, for example, is the fact that students are writing articles and papers with ChatGPT, And, oh, the end of the world, students will not know how to speak. Several comments on this. We are we in school when they taught us how to take a square root by hand. There's a way to take square root by hand. It's tedious complication. You can take square root of any number by hand. Nobody does it anymore. Nobody is teaching you how to do it because there's a calculator to do it. So you don't worry about it. When people talk about ChatGPT writing, okay. So what happens is I'm encouraging my students to use ChatGPT because I look at it as a tool, just like spreadsheet. 
developing a, a financial model used to be a problem before spreadsheets. It would be very tedious and go to programmers and go back and forth with people. Now you do it in Excel, in a spreadsheet. However, I do tell people that if the article is bad, Google doesn't get an F, you get an F. So uh, you have the responsibility to ensure that this is okay. And that will be the job of monitoring in general in business is something that will become more and more important. Is monitoring a lot of the machines, making sure that everything is working the way it should be working. And it brings me back to some of the advantages that humans have over machines and over AI. The fact that we understand context. We understand what happens outside the system that may impact the system that the AI machine will not know about. We just said, you know, a pandemic started. Russia went to Ukraine. The world is changing. There's some tension between U.S. and China. And whatever it is, there are things that may influence our decisions, the way we process stuff, the way many of our processes, which the AI may not be able to address yet. So people have to step in and, and do it. So I think, yeah, jobs will change, new jobs will happen, and even new industry will come up. But I don't see massive unemployment at all. There are other worries about uh, generative AI in general, but I don't think jobs is there. So on an individual level, and I think the message there is that we could all probably get better at our own jobs if we upskill by learning how to use these technologies the same as we learned to use spreadsheets, we learned to use calculators, particularly with generative AI like chat GPT. What are the business opportunities out there from its use that have you identified? I mean, it's relatively early days, I guess, and we won't really know, but where do you think there's the most benefits for supply chain logistics companies from this technology? Well, first of all, as we talked about, particularly in ChatGPT, first of all, higher productivity in generating documents, looking at contracts, testing contracts to see if everything that needs to be done needs to be done, so more accuracy, faster, faster work. There are some things that will be harder to do without AI in general, large language model, not particularly ChatGPT, but only under large language model. For example, if I want to know what is the risk that my critical suppliers will be there six months from now? I can go to Daniel Bradstreet and other financial reporting. All of these are backward looking, at least a quarter and most of them two quarters. So it doesn't give me an indication of what's happening now. However, if I make sure that I scour the earth for every media report and every social media report on executives that are leaving, on failed projects, on... Uh, elongating the time that this supplier is paying each supplier, okay, I may want to visit them because this gets me suspicious that something is going on and they're not paying attention to business. This is something that couldn't do before. You had to go by hand and you couldn't go over on the massive, everything that's written about them out there. So this is an example of using large language models to look at the texts and images and, you know, videos, whatever, and get some intelligence out of them. So this is an example of things that could not really be done that well, where large language model can provide a new dimension of capability. I'm hesitant to reference Donald Rumsfeld. Are there known unknowns out there in terms of how these technologies are going to be implemented and, and that element of risk? 
Yeah, there is, there is. What worries me is not so much jobs. There have been no industry, no jobs. There, there, there should be some, some period that government should uh, intervene to allow people to upgrade skills and maybe they need some support, but I don't see it fundamental long-term. What I see fundamental long-term is the deep fakes. I can get, every one of my students ask me, can get Joe Biden appear on television and talking nonsense and threatening to nook, you know, Luxembourg. Uh, it is too easy to create defects, for example. Too easy to create the believable misinformation and disinformation. So I'm worried about the 2024 U.S. elections with the government forces creating this. But, so that's the, the bit. So let me talk about why I'm not, I'm worried but not anxious. Because... I'm thinking about the, the early days of the internet. We all thought that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. That, the, you know, people get to communicate with each other, families together, regardless of where you are. And it's true. What we did not think about is identity theft, theft of data, terrorists, you know, organizing over the internet, all the bad side of the internet. The difference now is that the developers whether it's OpenAI or Google or Microsoft or uh, Amazon, are all aware of it. And they are all already starting to put guardrails and they think they are calling for regulation. For example, right now, if you go to ChatGPT and ask them how to build a Molotov cocktail, it will answer, I don't give you an answer. It will not give you an answer. So already the developer are putting some guardrails around it. But in the United States, the talk is about creating a new agency like the Federal Drug Administration that, of course, you cannot put a new drug on the market. It has to go to trial and approval and all this. Again, they're talking about creating an agency that every new version of some of this generative AI program will have to go through and will have to go through some period and be tested and make sure that it doesn't go awry. So... Whether this is the solution or the way the Chinese look to, uh, to regulate AI, the Chinese regulate very smart. They're regulating the training data. They make sure that the training data is such that it doesn't include things that are, as they say, harm the harmony of the uh, Chinese government, which means questioning the uh, Communist Party. But all of this is encouraging in that the developers themselves are calling for regulation and started to put by themselves guardrails. So that's room for hope. At the same time, there are clearly, I read Yuval Harari wrote in, in The Economist, a very good article about thinking that saying apocalyptic forecast that generative AI will ruin democracy and the DNA of humanity. It's hard for me to see why Yuval Harari is a brilliant guy Hard for me to see this. You're definitely an optimist. Your glass is normally half full then. Yeah, look, let me tell you something. Everybody, as you say, I started five companies. Everybody who started company is an eternal optimist because it is so damn difficult and takes up so much effort that unless you are a total optimist, you'll never get there. You'll never take risks. There seems to be a theme running through your books and this particular book that Technology has the potential to fill in gaps in that supply chain ecostructure. Do you think in our business there's a, a type of nirvana or, to quote Thomas More, a utopia that people would like to get to, but they'll never reach out? I mean, by this, I mean 
whether we're talking about the internet of things, mobile internet, robotics, cloud computing, or of course, AI. Are people over-optimistic about how technology can really create this perfect end-to-end visibility across procurement, manufacturing, and logistics processes? Is all of this going to be forever out of reach? Or you sound like you're quite optimistic that maybe it won't be. It will take a long time if it ever happens. I am not that optimistic. I'm trying to be realistic. Some of the problems there have really nothing to do with technology, even though technology is not there yet. I mean, we're not yet with the price of a, of a sensor that can go on a pallet and similar to the price of a barcode. It's not. A good sensor that can transmit is about $50, the best ones. Barcode is basically free. So let's temper you know, our enthusiasm. But on top of it, what's most important is that it's people. And if I want, my supplier may not be willing to tell me who their supplier is. It's a business confidential information. They don't want everybody to know who their supplier is, who their supplier and their supplier. So the question is not so much a, a question of technology. It's a question of trust. And it's hard to imagine trust developing to a level that everybody will open the kimono and let you know, yes, this comes from here, and this comes from there, and this comes from there. It's just hard for me to imagine. It's, it's, it's human nature. It's a competitive advantage. It's, uh, I don't see ever being able to see exactly how every part and area is moving from place to place because there's so much competitive information there, just knowing how things move and who exactly are the suppliers. So, no, I don't. Being optimist doesn't mean being unrealistic. <laughs> So the human condition to always fall slightly short of utopia, I guess. Professor Yossi Sheffi, Director of the Centre of Transportation and Logistics at MIT, thanks very much for sharing your thoughts today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this pilot episode of Freight Expectations, a Freight Buyers Club podcast. You can find more podcasts like this on www.thefreightbuyersclub.com and on our YouTube channel of the same name. Please sign up, follow and subscribe. There'll be lots more podcasts coming soon. Thanks for listening.